Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast, a show for accountants using technology to make their jobs more strategic and impactful. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. So David, what's new this week? It's like a real back to work week, I think, right? Like there's no more holiday. Like There's no uh, World Cup kind of ended yesterday after lunch. Well, it doesn't end. There's still a championship game, but it's kind of like, hey, this is a real work week. Yeah, it definitely ramped up a lot for us. I, last week was dead. So this is nice. I think last last night we wanted to, we thought about recording the podcast last night and you were just like this is too much too busy today it's not going to happen so <laughs> exactly yep so maybe as well jump in um, I have an article from Matt Path so he's uh, down under but he wrote an article uh, called Hey Mid Market Zero and Intuit are coming and it's really an article and an argument he's made about um, you don't have to go buy these mid market or enterprise type systems, you can almost build a custom ERP on top of a QuickBooks Online or a small business accounting system that has APIs and apps that plug in on top of it. Um, the interesting, the, the article in the beginning is a little bouncing around on the background, but he does get, as you get deeper into it, he's in his graph, but then he has a kind of his advice and he breaks it out in, the, in his recommendations, like how to, each about the claims these salespeople are making at these uh, ERP vendors. And how you can you kind of think about those differently and overcome these using a, a, a small business cloud package built to them with apps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I've definitely encountered this. Um, so since I started at Flowcast, I'm learning so much more about the mid market because that's the that's our primary market is controllers uh, in industry for mid sized companies. And I suppose we should define that, right? So there are many definitions of mid-market. I tend to think of it pretty broadly, like uh, businesses over $10 million a year in revenue and under, uh, you know, like a billion. <laughs> so it's pretty, it's a lot. Um, but, uh, or you could be more narrow with that. But generally, it's it's a business where you've got quite a few employees, uh, you've got an accounting team, right, accounting department, uh, and you have a need to report to investors and shareholders. And it's it's a lot different than your mom and pop type type business situation, right? How do you, how do you define it, David? It's a little, it, to me, it's great. Cause I think people try to always define it from the number of employees or the revenue. But then I always hear stories about like, you know, Google apparently was using QuickBooks desktop until they were a $200 million company, right? <laughs> like, like, or uh, my understanding is Uber was using QuickBooks online for the longest time. And they had like 70,000 vendors in there. Um, so it was more of it. Our engineering team got excited because it was very, uh, an engineering challenge, but like you, you hear about these big companies and it's like, what really defines that? Is it the size? Is it the volume? Is it the complexities, the reporting out? Is it just, um, I've heard uh, stories from some people that work for uh, Salesforce and he basically is like, Hey, as soon as a company takes VC money, and they have to start account. I go in there and I get my million dollar sale for Salesforce. <laughs> like, like it, it's 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 like what defines it? Is it the uh, the capital they've gotten? Is it the revenue? Is it their size? Their employees? I don't really have a definition. Yeah, it's and and the market doesn't really either. So so uh, let's let's set that aside for now and and, and address this article, right? So um, Matt is talking about the mid market needs for accounting software, and he's basically arguing here that uh, it's no longer it's no longer a, an absolute that you are going to go to an ERP system when you get to that mid-market stage, at least the beginning of it. You can use apps like Xero and QuickBooks Online and extend those applications with add-ons so that you don't have to graduate immediately. And he's saying potentially ever, uh, which I disagree with, but and I'll, I'll, we can go into that. Um, but 
I've, I've seen this myself, um, not with a lot of, of folks, but with one controller in particular who is on uh, zero and he has been just integrating you know, dozens of add-ons in order to get what he needs out of, of zero. So Expensify, Approval Max, Bill.com, all that good stuff. I mean, he's basically getting ERP functionality without having to go to NetSuite or Intact. I think some of his article too, like he's kind of making an argument that what's offered right now for mid-market in general is kind of dated, right? And I think that's some of his argument. He's like, why am I going to, why, why are we forced to use this old technology stacks that are heading towards 15, 20 years old when there's these other great options that are open APIs and in there, you can build a, the tech stack customized to some extent. Yeah. And I think to be fair, um, you know, Matt is down in Australia and I don't think that the mid-market vendors, especially here in the U.S., have done a good job of selling into Australia. So there's not a lot of options there. Uh, and there, it's mostly old desktop server-based systems that people are using in the mid-market. Um, and basically what he's saying, I don't know, did you mention the title of the article? Hey, Mid-Market, Zero, and Intuit are coming. He's basically saying, this is a giant warning to you guys. And this is based on Matt's experience, 18 years in the mid-market, uh, uh, on the vendor side, consulting side, saying, you guys had better innovate or your businesses are going to get eaten by Zero and uh, Intuit coming up from below. Yeah, and if, if I'm looking at his graph correctly, he doesn't even have Sage, uh, Sage Intact on here. Well, yeah, because right. until uh, like a year and a half ago, they weren't international at all. And I think okay. actually uh, Sage purchased Intact, acquired Intact in order to take them global. Got it. Got it. So, yeah. so it's, 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 so you're right. Like some of it's skewed based on historically, like there just hasn't been decent cloud players maybe. So, so Matt has some common misconceptions and uh, myths about mid-market software versus SMB software that he dispels in the article very well, which uh, is excellent. So he says... You know, transaction volumes that used to be that was an argument why you had to go to a mid mid market ERP no longer necessary there aren't hard limits in QBO or zero uh, PO authorization he says you can get around that with approval max or an add on uh, that that handles the POs and the approvals uh, reporting you can plug in a variety of reporting tools same with budgeting uh, you can do various uh, tools you know spotlight reporting all that good stuff um, audit trails that's getting better. Project tracking, uh, I still don't think that's that great, but Matt says, you know, you can do it, um, and it's good enough for a lot of businesses. But there's a lot of add-ons. I mean, there's definitely add-ons. Um, he doesn't go touch on that as much, but there's definitely, depending yeah. on what kind of company you are, you can get project software that will project track, track yeah. for you. Yeah. Now, here is, now this is based on my experience over the last six months, now working uh, in the mid-market industry uh, or the vendor on the vendor side, is that um, I, I think, I think that the reason that you're never going to have SMB software uh, take over in the mid-market is simply that the, the, the customer, the target customer, the buyer is different, very, very different. And it's impossible to serve two customers that are that different really well. And uh, so to lay it out there, uh, the customer, the primary customer of Zero and Intuit is the small business owner and the accountant who serves that small business owner small CPA firms, small business owners. The primary customer of ERP software is the CFO and the corporate controller. Yep. And those are very, very different people with very different needs. And, and you're not going to build the same feature set for both those markets. Yeah, and then it's, 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 it's been hard to go to a big, huge company with a CFO and be like, hey, 
go look at this app that's $39 a month and this app and this app. And maybe those apps themselves aren't set up to either sell to enterprise or have those conversations with somebody at that level. Yeah. Um, and you're right. So so I think it kind of your argument is, is mid-market's kind of a niche, small business is a niche, and you got you to gotta stay focused because it's hard yeah. to do both at the same time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm all for integrating applications, but even I will admit that once you get beyond five or six applications integrated into your accounting system, it gets kind of out of control and can become a mess. And, and, you know, the benefit of an ERP is that you get more all in one type functionality and you don't need a zillion add-ons. Uh, so I think that that's important. There's a few other, uh, points, um, you know, features that I've learned about uh, as being really important to CFOs and controllers that I think, you know, uh, Intuit's just not going to build, Zero's not going to build. A great example is multi-ledger functionality. So the ability to manage multiple entities and do instant consolidations in the same file, I, you know, QBO would have to be completely redesigned to do that. It's just not, I don't think it's going to happen, right? It's not the need of a small business owner. Most business owners on the small side, have one entity. Or if they do have multiple entities, they can just track it using, say, classes or something like that. Yeah, and we'd basically be solving a use case for 0.0001% of the, the customer base, right? Exactly. So out of millions of users, we're solving this for like seven. Yeah. <laughs> the other one, I have one other big one, which is um, dimensions, right? So they go by different names. It's classes and in QuickBooks, it's tracking categories in zero. And the issue that I see with the way that uh, the small business accounting systems have been designed is that you're limited in the, in the number of, of dimensions you can have, uh, and you can't customize them for different types of transactions. Whereas with an ERP system, it's not as pretty, right? The interface isn't as well designed, but because it's scalable in a lot of different ways, you can add just a ridiculous number of custom dimensions and create all these rules around them. So you can capture interesting data, really useful data at the point of uh, inception for a transaction. So, uh, you know, for instance, I can create a bunch of custom fields for my customer invoices and require those to be filled out in, in intact. Um, I can't necessarily do that in the other systems. Yeah. And then it's, it's, it's that fine line of like, what's starting to get overkill? Like how many custom fields are really needed? Yeah. And, right, yeah. you know, we can argue about that, but uh, you know, when you're trying to sell to a CFO, if they have a particular custom field that they've always had and they want it, uh, you're going to have a really hard time convincing them to abandon it. Totally. I think what you should do is uh, Matt has a good, and I, I talked to him a little bit about this a couple weeks ago in Sydney. Um, he gives an example of a nonprofit client he had. And basically he went, they, they were, they were having discussions with, I think, uh, MYOB and, and maybe we should have Matt on as a guest or something in the future to discuss this. Absolutely. But, um, Essentially, he talked to them and he went home that night and within like two days, he spun up basically all their data, all their workflows using um, QBO and some apps and came back to them and then really kind of gave them the price quote. And these people were just amazed that he was able to move their data through these through the apps right, and the accounting system for pennies on the dollar compared to the solutions that other people weren't even giving them the actual solution. It was just all still the sales pitch and how fast he spun it up. So it could be an interesting story for him to tell that or have him on to give more details about that. Cause it's, uh, I think, you know, the arguments on this are, uh, it's, it's interesting, right? And yeah. cause, cause I've, I've, I've had these discussions before with like some developers, like, Hey, we're going to help people not switch to, uh, NetSuite or something. And I'm like, the thing is, like QuickBooks Online, you know, or cloud accounting is growing at 40% a year, right? QuickBooks Online, I think, is adding 120,000 new small businesses a quarter. 
I think maybe what two or three are graduating to bigger software, right? And that's fine. That's like congratulations. But like you're right, from a priority standpoint, you know how how much effort is a, a small business software cloud company like Intuit going to put into trying to keep three customers a quarter from leaving? And I'm not saying that I disagree with Matt. I think that um, there will be definitely as the feature sets get built out, built out that you'll be able to delay going to an ERP longer and bigger, you know, bigger, small businesses will be able to continue using, uh, their, uh, accounting package. But the vast majority of mid-market companies are, are, they need their own systems. It's not going to be taken over completely. And probably the ERPs are not that worried because the best customers for them are the ones at the, you know, larger end of the mid-market. If anything, I think Sage Intact and Oracle NetSuite are going to push up, right? And try to take business from SAP and Oracle, which is kind of funny in the case of NetSuite because Oracle owns NetSuite. But so may, maybe the whole the curve the curve shifting a little because I I think in the olden days people would because of the cost they would just stick with QuickBooks Desktop Enterprise until it exploded, right? People would start new data files every quarter. They would do anything they could to just not have to spend that money at that next level. And so maybe maybe it's more of a shift and a delay of like, hey, you can really run on a QuickBooks Online for years longer than you could ever before. You don't have to make that jump. And you're right. Maybe the other ones are going to be able to be like, hey, we're going to start. You don't have to move to an Oracle. You can stay on us. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and people are uh, developers, um, even the big four are starting to see this, this gap in the market. So that's why KPMG has partnered with Microsoft to create a custom version of Microsoft Dynamics called Wise. I think we talked about this a couple episodes ago. Yeah. And they're specifically targeting the lower mid market. So it'll be uh, interesting to watch this as it as it as it grows because I don't think this is an end of a discussion or an end of an article. But uh, and it'd be interesting to also see. Uh, maybe we'll push on Matt when we talk to him here uh, to he, to build this chart, but build it for the globe instead of just the uh, AU market. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Let's have him on as a guest, Matt. Cool, if you're cool. listening, we we would love to talk to you. Yeah. Shoot me a tweet. Well, I've got another story that is actually related to Australia. Uh, we'll get to that. It's an article that appeared in CFO.com called Labor Costs Will Skyrocket Over the Next Decade. And it's based on a report from the consulting firm Corn Ferry, which puts out some really, really great research about um, labor costs and labor shortages and whatnot that are coming up. And this report is following up on a May report they did about the looming global talent shortage, which a lot of folks are like, what? How could there be a talent shortage? I've been hearing that robots and AI are going to take all of our jobs. Why would we have a talent crisis, talent crunch? And uh, the, the, the report goes into some detail about how this is for highly skilled labor. So CPAs, uh, lawyers, doctors, uh, professional folks, actually not even professional folks, just highly trained people. Uh, you could be a machinist. Uh, there's already a shortage of them, even, even truck drivers with special licenses. So anyway, to get to the point of this article, by 2030, Corn Ferry is saying that there will be a $2.5 um, trillion increase in labor costs for skilled labor as a result of the global shortage of highly skilled workers. And the United States is going to have the largest wage premium, meaning we're going to be paying as employers 
extra to our employees over the normal cost of inflation. Uh, and it's going to be $531 billion by 2030. That doesn't really mean a lot in the context of the whole economy. But uh, to give you an idea, the average wage premium, again, the extra money we're going to have to pay to skilled workers in the U.S. will be approximately $8,300 per head within the next 12 years. So add that to your budgets for your hiring of uh, CPAs and your accounting team. So, so pretty much they're just telling people to prepare, hey, you're going to have this labor increase. Even if you're not growing your size of your staff, you just, this is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And we all know that it's getting harder and harder to find good accountants. And this is part of a trend. Um, we haven't been uh, training enough folks. And simply just due to population shift, the baby boomers retiring, there aren't as many Gen Xers and millennials replacing them. And meanwhile, the global economy is growing at a fantastic pace. And just to keep up with normal growth, we'd have to be producing more skilled labor, and we're, we're not. So it's going to be a real challenge, I think, especially in the accounting world. Uh, and how this ties back to Australia is that they're going to have uh, an even worse problem than we do. Uh, the wage premium in Australia, it's going to be $28,600 per head by 2030. Can you imagine paying an extra $28,000 per accountant? That's not actually doing any more capacity or any more work, but you kind of don't have a choice, right? Yeah. And, and the other way to think about this is you're going to lose that person. Right? <laughs> if you don't pay them more, you're, they're going to go somewhere yeah. else and get more, yeah. which is starting to happen. And, and um, we, I was um, chatting with uh, Donnie Shimamoto, who was our uh, recent guest on LinkedIn about this. And, and you know, his question was, well, does this report actually take into account automation and AI? And the report doesn't get into how they did the analysis, but they do say that despite automation, this is going to happen, that there's going to be a talent shortage. And that's because most, I'm, I, expect, I assume that most of the automation and AI that we are seeing uh, being developed right now is going to be applied to low-skill jobs to begin with. So uh, jobs that you know, do not require a, a, a highly skilled training or, or license, right? So like, you know, factory work, which are, we've already seen automated, warehouse work, deliveries, that sort of thing. And Corn Ferry says it's going to create two classes of workers. We're going to have an oversupply of low-skilled labor. And we're going to have a shortage of high-skilled labor, which, you know, we could talk about the political implications of that, the economic implications of that. It's going to be a strange world that we live in. And I don't think it's just our industry, though, either. Um, I, I, a good example oh, no. is like, yeah. you know, here, here in, and you'll, you'll see this in Arizona, especially in the spring before it's, it's really air conditioning season. Like air conditioning companies are running commercials on television to hire people. Like it's that hard for them to find people that are capable of fixing air conditioning. Yeah. So, that's so they're a, not even that's advertising their product. Like they're running commercials not to advertise their, hey, we fix your air conditioner. They're, they're running commercials to hire people. Yeah. So that, that's good. If, if you have the ability, the intelligence, the drive to spend a couple of years and learn a skill like that or uh, you know, become an accountant, uh, get your CPA, then I think you'll be fine. You're going to have fantastic employment opportunity. But you know, if you're working fast food, if you're moving boxes around a warehouse, if you're driving a truck – you're probably going to get auto automated out of a job. And it's going to create a real crisis, I think, 
in the country if we don't have a way for these people to get retrained or if we don't have jobs for them, what are going to be the political consequences of it when we have this you know, highly paid skilled workforce and this low skilled workforce where wages are stagnant and they're losing their jobs or maybe they're getting automated out of work? It's going to be a strange kind of, you know, I can see like a potential dystopian future, but also a potential utopian future. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think on, when they count like the uh, jobless claims and the jobless numbers, they don't account for people that just are starting to opt out, right? They're like, uh, I don't have the skills to get a skill job. And they, they just they just opt out because they're not actively hunting. And then they, they don't count them as not being employed because they're just opting out. And so it makes the employment numbers always look higher than it probably really is. And so one thing I'll, I'll be put in the show notes, I'll include a link because they're a couple days ago, um, I know we've talked about them before. Planet Money has that indicator, and they have like uh, one just on jobs. And it's like ten questions in ten minutes, and they actually talk about this. What do employers mean when they complain about having a worker shortage? Yeah, it means very different things to, to different employers. Yeah, and so we'll definitely include that in there. It's uh, I think it's definitely related to this article, so it's probably worth putting that in the show notes. Sounds good. Well, um, that's all I've got this week, uh, David. I think we have one more. So we must just stay on this like international global thing. Um, I, big news. I think it just came out last night or maybe even this morning. Uh, Bill.com is going to start doing global payments. All right. Finally, I've been waiting for years. Yeah. I, 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 I have hundreds of Canadian accountants who have asked me this question for the last few years, right? When does Bill.com work in Canada? Um, now it's going to work in Canada and a bunch of other countries. Um, I don't know if they say in their article, 25 countries to do cross-border payments, which is a really big deal. Uh, and it's I going to cost $10 per transaction. They say that's an introductory price, but I'd be curious to see if that sticks around. And that will save a ton of money over wire transfers. Yeah, they're claiming here they'll save you 50% on international wire transfers. So I might, and I'm not an expert on the fees on this, but my understanding is they are way more than $10 a month. So the, the $10 a month is definitely not the 50%. Like it's kind of definitely an introductory offer, but it's probably not going to be excessive if, if bill.com's worked with the banks and they're uh, using their rails to move this money around and they're getting a discount for their customers to do this. So do you think this is going to impact the other uh, international payments providers in the ecosystems? Uh, yes and no. And, and what I mean by that is I think bill.com offers a workflow solution. Right there's a product for managing th- that those AP workflows, right? But not all small businesses need that, right? They don't have a team that needs to. Hey, I need Blake to sign off, and then this VP to sign off, and then somebody else to sign off before we make this transfer or uh, pay a bill, right? And so I think for people that have that situation, right inside their tool, they have the same controls and audits, etc., to send the money. It's gonna be it's gonna be huge for them, but I think there's still room in the market probably for smaller players. That like, hey, I'm a one man team. I approve the bills. I could go out to another. I'm not a Bill.com customer. I'm gonna go use that other app because I don't need the rest of that Bill.com functionality. I'm just gonna go transfer it via some app like Veeam or um, TransferWise or one of the other players that are in that space. But it's definitely huge though. This is a monster move for Bill.com. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see what the exchange rates are, how those are computed, because that often ends up being a bigger component of the cost of the international transfer than just the fee, the fixed fee of say $10 or $20 or $30, whatever that is. And I imagine that just given bill.com's relationship with banks, how they've very intelligently decided to partner with banks and trying to undercut them, that they won't 
undercut them too much or that the bank they've partnered with will still make a good amount of money. So I don't expect these, while these transfers will be cheaper than traditional international transfers, it's not going to be world changing. I think it's, again, more the convenience of being able to do it electronically inside of bill.com with all those approvals and, and whatnot. And that Veeam and TransferMate, TransferWise, they'll still end up being a lot cheaper on the exchanges because they use uh, systems that go outside the traditional banking system like blockchain and whatnot. No, and definitely, I think you can uh, definitely look at the last year and a half for Bill.com, right? Uh, I think they had another round of VC funding. They've done a lot of biz dev deals and announcements and press releases about things they were doing with banks. So you can see what this is kind of stacking up to kind of this being released to some extent. Yeah, but um, overall, man, fantastic. Really exciting to see the, this, the world economy getting tied together into electronic payments finally. Yeah, I, I think uh, some Canadians will be celebrating like they just won the World Cup. Like, I, I cannot believe how many people in Canada have been dying for this for uh, accounts and bookkeepers. So it's, it is a huge, huge deal. Well, David, that's all of our time this week. How should our listeners get in touch with us if they want to let us know about a story, if they're interested in joining us on the podcast, where should they contact you? Uh, Twitter's definitely the easiest. They can find me at David Leary. And I'm at Blake T. Oliver, and we look forward to hearing from you all. We'll see you guys next week. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.